uh, welcome uh, our brothers Resma and Albert and thank them for offering the generosity of their time and minds this morning. I believe in praising people even before they do anything. So <laughs> I wanted to take sure. I just want to praise you for being here. do that. Um, and I also just want to say good morning to all the people are, who are out there. I can't see you or hear you, but I appreciate your presence as well. Thank you for the generosity, generosity of your minds, your time. Um, and I want to let you know that you will have an opportunity to ask some questions uh, near the end of this experience together. Um, and so while you are listening to these brothers share their stories and their wisdom, uh, you can put some questions in the chat. And when we reach the Q&A time, uh, we'll take some of your questions. Um, so what I wanted to start with was a general question uh, for both of you. And, you know, you both have done many things. You could have done many things, but you made the decision to publish a book. Mm -hmm which is something that most of us don't do, even those of us who are engaged in, in efforts to change the world for the better. We don't necessarily write a book about it, but you did. And so my first question is, you know, what motivated you to take on that task of publishing a book? And what were you hoping to accomplish through your book? And I'd like to start with Albert. How would you answer that question? Uh. Well, solitary, I guess you could see it was kind of like a measuring uh, of my time in solitary. You know, I spent 44 years and 10 months in solitary confinement. Mm. Uh, this book, mm. it was kind of like a challenge in that I didn't want to write the book while I was in prison. I want, you know, it was, I wanted to write the book when I was free, when I was in society, rather. I had been free philosophically and mentally, you know. Uh, the heart of solitary confinement is almost beyond description. And uh, I just felt that the American people and maybe people of the world just didn't understand how brutal solitary confinement was. And, and what a secret it was, especially in America. And this was being done in their name, in the citizens' name of this country. And I thought that if I write this book, I can expose uh, the brutality of solitary confinement, raise the level of consciousness of, of people, and start a, a, a dialogue, national and international dialogue, uh, about the use of solitary confinement and the abuse of it and, and, and how it has no penological uh, purpose other than to break the human spirit. And so that was my motivation, you know, uh, to write this book. You know, I, I want to expose uh, the brutality and the use of solitary confinement and, and, and raise the level of consciousness of uh, of, of, of uh, citizenry in America and, and around the world. Mm. And just a quick follow-up, would you say that your hopes so far are, are being fulfilled? Well, yeah, actually I'm surprised, you know, uh, uh, my better half, uh, uh, Leslie George, uh, was a tremendous asset in writing this book, you know. Uh, it is my life, it is my words, but through her patience and diligence and intelligence, you know, uh, the book was, uh, took the shape and the form that it's in now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, uh, I, actually, I was 
somewhat surprised and, and, and a bit naive. Uh, as you know, the book was a finalist for the National Book Awards, one of the most prestigious literary awards in the country. And I'll never forget, I got the call from the lady telling me that I was in the 10th, one of the 10 finalists. And I had no idea. So when Les came home, I'm like, I got this call from this lady from the National Book Award about some award for the Les, like, oh my God. <laughs> and so uh, that forced me to do some research, you know, and I, and I really felt like a doofus, you know. Uh, uh, but like I say, you know, the, the, the recognition of the book and the way the book has been accepted for, you know, or we publish outside the country as well as inside the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really been, uh, as they say, you know, uh, uh, a blessing uh, in disguise, you know, because my, my main purpose was to expose the brutality and the, uh, of solitary confinement. Mm. Thank you so much for that. Resma, mm. what, talk about your motivation and your hopes. Yeah. First, I just want to acknowledge um, just to, in an embodied sense what this what this beautiful brother just said, that um, he had uh, he was confined by himself for 44 years and he came out of that experience at one point wanted to make sure that everybody understood what that experience was and that we had a national dialogue about it. Um, and in some ways, it perfectly dovetails with my experience. Um, what prompted my experience was, was being, well, number one, being born in a Black body in America, right? That's a, it's not being born in a Black body in Tahiti or something, you know what I mean? It's being born in a Black body in America, which is a different experience. And I think that um, what made me get to the point of actually writing the book was um, uh, a gal, things galvanized together. And what galvanized together was um, I had been doing work with the military um, and decided it would be a good idea on vacation to go to Afghanistan. No, it wasn't a vacation. It's just that I ended up taking a gig over there with a military contractor. And I did that for two years. And so much, so many things happened in that experience, things that I shouldn't have seen, things that I shouldn't have smelled, things that I shouldn't have had exposure to, things, uh, uh, people dying, people being raped, people being murdered, all that different type of stuff I was exposed to for two years. And my job was to take care of 53, uh, 53 military bases in Southern Afghanistan. So whenever something would happen, I would have to get on a on a copter and, and go to those places. And so in order to complete that, I had to override what was actually happening to me in order to be of any type of service to the uh, civilian men and women over there. And so um, it wasn't, so I did that from 2011 to 2013. It wasn't until I landed back here in, or I came back here in 2013 that, um, that my own both historic, what I call hip, historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, the persistent institutional trauma, and my own personal traumas came face to face with each other. 
um, and started to deal with some of my own suicide stuff and started to deal with my own pieces around overwhelm and overriding. And, and, and in one moment, um, this all came back together uh, with uh, uh, collided with the story that had happened between me and my grandmother when I was very young, where uh, I was rubbing her hands and I was asking why her hands were so big and so fat um, and her fingers were so fat um, and thick. And she looked at me without blinking an eye. She looked at me and said, oh boy, that's from picking cotton. And my young mind, I had no place to put that. And so I forgot that story, right? For years and years and years until I went through what I call the dark night of the soul, uh, dark nights of the soul, with uh, with my own pieces. And so the brutality and the viciousness and the feralness of this system on the bodies of black and indigenous people is without any measure. And so and so that's what prompted the book. That's what made the book come come out was my need to both uh, deal with it myself and give our people some sense of that they were not defective, but something had happened and continues to happen to them and their people. So that's mm. how it came mm. to the book. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the fulfillment of the, the hopes for this book, how do you think it's going? I think it's, I, you know, I think it's going good. I think, n- let me say this. I don't think it's going good in that white people are changing. Let me say that. Okay. <laughs> I think it's going good in that people are becoming aware, but becoming aware and doing the work are two different things. Um, And I think a lot of times this society and white folks in particular conflate those two. If they're nice, then they feel that's anti-racism, racism work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's embodied anti-racism work. And they're not, it's not. Your your niceness is inadequate to deal with the brutality of people being put in solitary confinement for 44 years, to deal with the brutality of, of, of walking around in a life knowing that in some ways your body you, you have a sense that you are an imposter or fraudulent or have racialized shame. Those pieces, your niceness is inadequate to deal with that. Mm. All right, thank you very much for that. So I wanted to turn back to you, Albert, and ask you a specific question about your book. Um, early in the book, uh, you share a story about racing horses with your, with your crew, with your boys, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of that new movie with Idris Elba called, I think it's called Concrete Cowboy a little bit. But it it made me think of two things because you said something, and I hope I'm getting this right, please correct me, that that, those moments of riding horses with your boys uh, were the only moments at that point where you weren't afraid of going to jail, right? Where you were kind of free of fear. And it made me think about two things that you probably noticed that there's a lot of fear in our society right now. Um, But there's also a lot of talk about freedom, not the practice of freedom, but talk about freedom. And I wonder, when you think about your experience and what you talked about in your book, what has your experience taught you about those two things, fear and freedom? Uh, Well, fear is a part of human nature. You know, you're always going to have fears of, I guess, uh, the solution is being able to conquer that fear, to be able to rise above it or go through it or 
or whatever, you know, I can't tell. I have so much experience with fear. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing more fearful than seeing six, seven, eight security guards standing in front of your cell and they all got nightsticks and blackjacks and gas and whatever, you know, and you know that they're getting ready to come in your cell for no other reason than that you wouldn't bow down, you wouldn't allow your spirit to be broken, or you wouldn't take uh, abuse or or any other way, you know, but some way else, somehow, you know, uh, always found the strength to overcome that fear, and and uh, I didn't take that ass whipping uh, easy, you know, I made them work for it, you know. But so, you know, uh, fear is just a part of who we are as a species, you know. Uh, uh, you know, the, the trick is, you know, uh, the, the, you know, developing the courage within oneself to overcome that fear, you know. Mm. Uh, that's one of the biggest, you know, uh, the, the, one of the things we need more than anything is change. And yet, it's the thing that we we fight against the most because of fear. Fear brings uncertainty. It brings uh, uh, subjectivity more than objectivity. So, you know, we we fight against it, and you know, uh, uh, you know. So once we begin to uh, overcome that fear, man, and, and, and you know, then that 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 change is is, is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I, I definitely had you know, experience with fear, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I, I'm feeling moved to to just do it a little bit differently because I'd actually like to hear your response to this as well, Resma. Mm-hmm. Um, given what you talked about, your yeah. work um, in your service, fear, freedom. What have you yeah. learned about fear and freedom? Yeah. Um, I, I'm so glad I'm doing this with Brother Wood Fox because he's, he's really making me kind of deal with some pieces as I'm listening to him there's some pieces that's popping up for me and one piece that's popping up for me that he said that he said they're gonna have to earn this right that they're gonna have to earn this I ain't just gonna bow down because the structure says that I'm not really a human right if you go if you're gonna whip my ass you're going to earn this. Right? <laughs> and, and there's, there's some real, that, that goes way back to creation, right? That goes way back. And our people, even through the brutality of enslavement, had that peace. You know, look, I'm going to get through this, all this stuff you're doing, all this blah, blah, blah. You're going to have to earn this, right? One way or the other. If you, if you this committed to, to to white body supremacy and racism, you're going to have to earn this. You ain't going to whip my ass and just walk away, right? You're going to remember <laughs> that there was something that had to be done in order to whip my ass. I think the I, that's what freedom is to me. Freedom is landing mm-hmm. back into resource in an embodied sense, right? Mm-hmm. I know that this stuff is, I know the sticks is coming, the gas is coming. I'm going to see my babies murdered and get shot in the chest with their hands up in Chicago, with their hands up in, in Minneapolis. I know that's happening. And when and when that happens, you're going to have to earn this ass whooping because I'm going to still be here. I'm going to still keep coming. And to me, that's freedom. Fear is not something that we should be, and this is going to sound funny, fear is not something we should be afraid of. Fear teaches us discernment. 
That's what I'm saying. Fear teaches us discernment. It forces us to look at what is and begin to say, is that that or is that that, right? And that process actually actually informs us and informs the body around what's possible. It quakes. Fear makes us quake. And we think that when, when we quake, we, we need to stop it. In actuality, what we need to do is hold it and cultivate it so we can begin to see who we really are as we move through it. Most of us never move through it. Most of us stop at the, at, at the, at, at the cell's edge, right? We mm-hmm. stop right there. And then what ends up happening is that energy, the historical energy, the intergenerational energy, the persistent institutional energy, and then our own personal traumas get walled up behind that thing. And before you know it, we're weathered. Our, 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 our nervous system is where our brain architecture gets weathered. Our literal body and sense of who we are to in, in creation gets weathered. And what we can do is just what brother said, is tap into that resource that's not connected to those men uh, on the other side of the cell, but connected to creation itself. I am, I am connected to creation itself. And so therefore you have to earn his ass weapon. Yes, yes. So thank you so much for that. And, you know, well, let's uh, I think we have a a little bit of a switch here in terms of interpreters. So let's pause. Give them some time to prepare. All right. So I'm feeling moved to uh, to just make some space so you two can take some space. Yeah. And let you just interact with each other. What questions do you have for mm. each other? Uh, me, uh I'm almost embarrassed to see it, but you know, um, is it difficult for you to to identify what is racist and what is not when you're dealing with people or you're seeing occurrences in society? Uh, thing because sometimes you know uh, people of color especially African American uh, they would attach racism to something mm-hmm. and I didn't feel that way yeah. and so I'm, I'm asking myself what am I missing yeah. you know what had my experiences in life brought me to this point where I don't identify racism uh, mm. when it's sitting right before me. Mm. And uh, so I was wondering, if, have you ever had a similar situation or experience like that where something didn't seem racist to you or it got past you mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, somebody called it out and made you go back and say, uh-oh. Yeah. 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 All the time, brother. Yeah. <laughs> all, all the time see this 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 racism thing is in its in and of itself is a messy proposition right the idea that you can that you will set up a system in which the <clears throat> white the, in which the white body deems itself the supreme standard by which all bodies humanity shall be measured structurally and philosophically. Now, I'm not talking about intrinsic worth and I'm not talking about innate worth. I'm talking about structural worth. 
the, the race question in this country is for me is a species question first. And that's the piece we miss a lot of times. We want to, we, we want to look for episodes of racism. When I'm saying you're missing, you're, you're so busy looking for the sharks that you're missing the water. The water is racist, <laughs> right? Yeah. The very thing that we're soaked in is racist. Um, the, the idea, and when I say racist, I mean a structure that is predicated on the white body being the standard of humanness and every other body <laughs> is seen as deviant from that standard. And so for me, if I caught everything that was going on, I'd be, black folks would be walking down the street, I mean, we'd be babbling, right? Because it is so, the very essence of this thing is based on the white body as human and every other body as other, the white body as human and the black and indigenous bodies as less human and not human. That's why three-fifths, that's why all of the, the compromise, that's why all of this stuff is really about, and, and, and the science, the, the education system, all of that stuff is predicated on notions that the black body is not human. That's, that's all the way through that. So yeah, I miss a lot, but, but the thing that I'm clear about is that I don't look at it as episodes anymore. I don't look at it as, oh, that's racist, or that's racist, or that's racist, because that's episodes, that's episodic. I look at it as, oh, that's a manifestation of this feral system that has, that has dedicated its very existence on making sure that everybody understands that the white body has deemed itself the standard of humanness. And if you get out of line, Right, we're gonna show you that you have to be put back into that hierarchy. You have to, and, and so it's not episodic. If you know, science is about consistency, right? Yeah, one of the things that we know is that white body supremacy is consistent, it's consistent in its brutality towards black bodies, it's consistent in its viciousness towards the indigenous. <clears throat> Right. It, it, it is unceasing. And and many times we miss the impact of white body supremacy, racialization and racism. We miss it because we're so busy looking for incidents as opposed to examining and interrogating the structure of this mess. Mm. So right. my, okay. my mm. question to you, brother, is this real talk. In. In. In as much embodiment as you can muster, how, who, who did you, who did you hold on to during those forty-four years, brother? Oh, that's easy. My mother, you know, that's easy. Easiest question I've ever been asked, really, since I've been free. My mom, uh, you know, as a young man. Uh, of course, I felt the example she was setting and the restrictions she was trying to put on me was her control in my life. You know, not wanting to let me be me or who I am and all the other stuff that go with being, you know, the arrogance, I call it, uh, I did a poem or, or echoes or the tribute to my mom. And, you know, I refer to it as the arrogance of manhood, you know. And uh, 
But yeah, you know, my mom, uh, and I addressed this in the book, she was functionally illiterate, but she was one of the smartest women I ever knew. And uh, with all that, uh, as you said, the racist America threw at her and denied her and take away from her. They never could break her. They mm. never could take her spirit. Mm. And sometime in my most painful and darkest moments, uh, uh, I always, you know, remember her. Remember, remember how she stood, you know. And, uh, you know, when I was coming up, she used to always tell me, uh, boy, when you look in the mirror, if you're not proud of what's looking back at you, then you're not living right. You know, and so that's that 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 was my uh, uh, my source of strength. Even now, you know, uh, uh, that's what inspired Echoes. Uh, you know, it's a tribute not only to my mother but to, to all mothers. You know, yeah, yeah. brother. That's uh, the idea that that your mother was a resource in those 44 years that your mother was was forced you even when i'm listening to you brother there is such a beautiful quality to your to your voice that's that sounds so settled to me right and um and i i think sometimes when we go through stuff i i like 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 when i as i've gone through all of the things i've gone through <clears throat> I think about how 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 much resource that both communal and individual resource that I actually have access to. And it is not until we get faced with something that is so overwhelming that you really realize what it is that you're made of, like how you're tied to people and how you're tied to things that are important. It really forces you to, to discern what's important. And um, my grandmother, right? My grandmother and my mother was, is the same, like in my book, I start off yeah. the story with her, right? And it's because, it, it, you know, when I was going through the, 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 the suicide stuff um, and, and, and just sitting there like, I don't know if I'm gonna make it, you know, I don't, I don't know how this is gonna work, right? She kept flashing, bruh. She kept, she, she just flashed <laughs> and I asked, man, I could do maybe one more second, man. I can, I can hold on maybe one more second. And then those seconds kind of added together. And then my wife held me, uh, my wife, Maria just held me as I was going th uh, through this stuff and didn't, didn't be like, oh, your crazy ass gotta go. You can, <laughs> you got you crazy. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, she, she never had no, no no done nothing with no war or nothing like that and so it was it was the, the, but the women the women for me and my family have always been this sustaining resource and i think this world chews up black women in ways that um i'm i'm committed for the rest of my life to make sure that i at least give some voice to it yeah definitely you know yeah all right, so I, I think we've uh, reached that moment where we want to call the people in and give them an opportunity to interact with you two a little bit, at least through me. So let me take a look and let's see what questions have come up, and I'll share some with you. 
So this is a question for you, Albert. And the question is, how did your spiritual practice foster resilience and how did it change over time for you? Mm. Mm. Very difficult. Mm. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, the church is such a big part of the African-American uh, community. Mm-hmm. And somewhere along the line, I kind of disconnected from organized religion because I saw too many and too much contradiction between, uh, at the time, uh, you know, what the Lord said and what, you know, uh, mankind and uh, humanity was doing. But I've always considered myself to be very spiritual. I never lost that. And that spirituality, I think, is a strength and that it allows me to not just see a problem and intellectually, intellectually want to fix it. You know, I actually connect with it. I can feel it. I can feel the pain that it's causing. I can feel the stress. I can feel uh, whatever that, that problem is. And so I, you know, uh, that spirituality motivates me. It makes me want to, you know, uh, fight harder, stand taller, uh, you know, bring uh, any kind of relief I can from whatever it is that I'm fighting uh, at the moment. You know, I am happy to say that since I've been out, uh, of course, you know, uh, uh, we lost, you know, uh, Harmon Wallace. Robert King and myself and all as the angles of three. And we lost Herman four days uh, after winning this freedom, you know, mm. uh, to liver cancer. And, uh, but since I've been out, you know, Robert and I have did a lot of traveling around the country, outside the country. And, and, and you know, and, uh, you know, there are times when I get, you know, weary when I'm sick, when, I'm hurting or whatever, you know, but I always think about what it was like sitting in that cell, what it was like, you know, uh, fighting for your sanity 24 hours a day, Mm. 365 days a year, you know, never being allowed or having an opportunity to relax, uh, you know, Mm. and so, you know, that is, you know, uh, I've had people to say, you know, ask us about, well, did you have TVs? That, well, eventually, you know, uh, it took 10, approximately 10 years of hunger strikes and being gassed and beaten and protests and signed petitions and, and stuff to get, you know, access to TVs and magazines and newspapers and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, mm. it was, it was a battle, you know, I mean, man, we, we, we had uh, hunger strike for 45 days because we didn't want to pull our food under the door anymore, being fed like an animal. We All we asked them was to cut food slots, you know? So, you know, and then, and then we ate through the bars because uh, the agreement was we could hold our tray in the hand and eat through the bars until they cut food slots. And that took what eighteen months. Yeah. So we ate through the balls for eighteen months. 
right. you know, rather than, uh, you know, uh, we use the term raising the level of consciousness. You know, mm-hmm. we, you accept a lot of things in life until someone or event raise your level of consciousness. You know, for instance, what's going on in the country right now, the policing was started with slavery, the brutality and stuff. We used to accept that. Yeah. You know, but then brave men and women, and in some cases children, raised our level of conscience by defying or organizing against, mm-hmm. you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I live my life on that principle, you know, that, uh, you know, uh, when confronted with something, you know, uh, uh, as you said earlier, you know, uh, it's more it, 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 empathizing with what's something that's wrong is okay, but it doesn't change anything. That's exactly right. You know, you got to yeah. go beyond empathizing. You got to get involved. You got to, you know, put as they say, put put it on the line. That's you know? mm-hmm. And, and uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, that's pretty much how I live my life right now. Yeah, yeah. So, Resma, I know that this uh, question wasn't directed to you, but in your book, you use a term, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think the term you use is a soul nerve. Yeah, yeah. So can yeah. you bring that in a, a little yeah. bit and talk yeah. for, for folks that, aren't, that don't, aren't familiar with the concept? Yeah, so the soul nerve is actually a nerve that comes out of the brainstem, and it, it lands in the pharynx and the face and the chest and the stomach. It, it is, I believe, a, 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 a vibratory nerve. It, 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 I think it, it, I think the body itself is a, a, both an amplifier and a receiver, right? And what we've been taught is that the only knowledge is cognitive knowledge, is objective knowledge, is, is, is what you can think and logic, right? And I believe, I believe that there are um, that's one intelligence, but I think there's uh, there's five other intelligences, creation intelligences. And so the first one is vibratory, right? I think the second one is, or not the second one, but I think the next one is uh, images and thoughts and dreams and stories and, and, and movement, right? I think the third or the next is the meaning making and then behavior and urges affect and feeling and then sensation like the the coolness on my face on my skin you know my skin is the largest organ of the body so that 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 all of those things in this racist society we have we have not honed there is a honing there is a practice there are reps that we must get when i listen to brother uh wood fox one of the things that and brother i didn't know you were part of the angola three brother thank brother yeah um brother thank you i just i you i need to say this to you thank you true thank you and and the other brother other two brothers um that what the brother what what i hear the brother talking about is what i called and so and so the vagal nerve is it is a receiver and an amplifier and 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 there's a constriction that can happen when we are put upon an overroad and that constriction over time can look like personality in a person. That constriction over time can look like family traits in the family. That constriction over time can look like culture in the people. And when I'm listening to Brother Woodfox talk about spirituality, the term that comes to my mind is that it is a forged spirituality. 
that he's talking about. It is an application spirituality that he's talking about, right? That that his examination over those 44 years around what was uh, what was true, what was solid, what was resourced, and what was not, is something that monks do, right? For, for, for years upon years, when you are left with yourself, right, to contend with, there is a forging that happens. There is a tempering condition that happens if you're going to make it out, right? If you're going to make it out, there is something that, that one of the things I say is that process, those types of processes thicken our skin, fortify our mind. And if we do it right, also condition a malleable heart. And what, this is what you're hearing in Brother Woodfox is the thickened skin, a fortified mind, and a malleable heart. What happens to a lot of us is we develop thick skin, a fortified mind, and a hardened heart, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in spirituality, forward spirituality really is about how do you go through this in a way where you're, you, 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 you know what you know. You, 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 your skin is thickened from all of the brutality, but you still have a malleable heart that people that love you can access, that people that you love can access. Mm-hmm. Many of us can't do that. We, we, mm-hmm. we come out of those experiences with thick skin, fortified mindset, and a hardened heart, and that tempers mm-hmm. everything else. So that's, mm-hmm. that's what I would say. Yeah, so actually, uh, there's a question here for Resma. One of the things you talk about in your book is the issue of culture yeah. and cultural change. So we actually have a pop culture question <laughs> about uh, the new Captain America. Oh, man, Stan I just, wa- I, just <laughs> I just I just watched it last. I just binge watched it like like let's like I got done at two thirty in the morning. And just binge watched. A friend of mine said, "Have you watched the rest of the episode?" And I was like, "I was like, no." He goes, "Man, you got to watch the rest of that episode." Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give a little spoiler alert. Let's try not to do a spoiler, but can you talk broadly? <laughs> yeah. Broadly yeah. about uh, do you see any significance in terms of representation? Yeah. Issues of trauma. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, 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 um, What when you watch this Captain America thing without without telling people to play? The, the, I know the, that's hard, but you know. yeah, yeah. One of the things that you see is this thing that Du Bois talked about about uh, uh, two souls or warring mm-hmm. souls, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, or was it Langston? It was I can't, I can't remember either Langston. Or, yeah, they both talked about yeah, 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 yeah. Double consciousness. So, so, so. What they played out in a very subtle way in the, in this new Captain America is Sam Sam, who is was the Falcon, who is now the new Captain America. Yeah. His battle with the symbol the symbol of America, right, and the brutality of which he is living in, right, and 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 uh, and what happened to the people before Sam. They did a really good job of not pitting black bodies against each other, right? In in terms of what we were experiencing and what we experienced. So so the old man um had an there was an old black man that had an experience with America that he was that 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 in which he when he looked at Sam, he was looking at Sam as if you're gonna get played, right? 
because I didn't been through this. I hear what you're saying, but I didn't been through this. And so to me, the, 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 the story really is about how people around the world were, uh, uh, are brutalized, right? And, and, and viciousness and how, how, how the, these, these systems really are predicated. And this is what Kendi talks about. These mm-hmm. systems really are not predicated on hate. It's predicated on self-interest, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and then people get bamboozled into thinking their self-interest is aligned with the elite self-interest. And this book, this, this movie or the, the, the series really does a good job of just touching the edges of it, right? What does it mean to be a patriot? Does it mean to be a patriot? Does that mean that you accept what is or you mm-hmm. go about the business of changing what is? Mm-hmm. And so, so in the, in the, in the, in the series, that's that that's the piece and you get a chance to see some subtle and you get a chance to see what you don't see a lot on tv you get a, you get a chance to see black men loving each other even mm-hmm. as they're going through something you get a sense of you get a sense of tenderness between black men mm-hmm. right and i really liked that i really liked that 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 tenderness that sam and um uh uh brother I, uh, uh, Isaiah uh, have to have to deal with right there is there's definitely this kind of hardening like thick and skin and fortified mindset because mm-hmm. that's the only way you survive something like what they're mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. but then there's pieces in which in which you watch Sam um, do this thing that I call um, uh, uh, receiving and giving right you mm-hmm. see him do this do this piece where he he extends his hands to both give and receive at the same time mm-hmm. and and so mm-hmm. it's, it's just a beautiful thing to watch mm-hmm. yeah. all right thank you for that uh because we're talking a little bit about pop culture i'm going to make a reference to the mandalorian yeah uh because there's a question about values yeah uh that's directed to both of you the mandalorians often say this is the way yeah this is the way. This is our code. This is how we roll, right? Mm-hmm, right. And so I was wondering, you know, a, a person is asking about your core values. So what would you say is your way? What is the way of Resma? What is mm. the way of Albert, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, if you had to spell it out for people, what is your way? And either of you could take it. Well, the Wood Fox, go ahead. <laughs> Well, for me, I guess my core is uh, uh, humanity. You know, mm-hmm. you know when I when I you know made the transition or the transformation from being a petty criminal to a, a member of the Black Panther Party and uh, and a political activist, uh, it took a period of about twenty seven years of self education, re education. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and personal experiences uh, uh, to become you know uh, thing and, and somewhere along the line, not consciously, I developed this unbelievable love for humanity mm. because my education and my experiences for the first time, I felt as though I was a part of humanity, not separate from humanity. I wasn't on the outside looking in. And that in turn held, helped me, you know, to uh, uh, 
develop moral principles, a code of conduct, values. Uh, and, and, and throughout all this, my mom was always the beacon because she was the source that I always went back to to help me understand or to help me figure a way to, to deal with whatever the situation or the individual uh, uh, was, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that to me, that's my core, my love of humanity. Mm. You know, I'm often asked, why am I not bitter and angry, you know? And, and I, I'm not bitter, but of course I'm angry, you know? Robert, mm. uh, the other member, the eight three living member, is fond of saying you can't dip a man in human waste up to his neck and expect him to be clean when he stand up. Mm. So I, 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 yeah, I, there is some anger, but it's a motivational anger. It is an anger that motivates me to not want another human being to go through without my truth, to not know the pain that I know from my experiences, uh, you know, in life, you know. And so, you know, that that's my core. Yeah. Mm. You know, my you love of humanity, you know. Thank you so much, Resma. Uh, if, if, if I had to break it down in just to like a, a kind of a phrase, I, I think it is that um, <clears throat> my way is to help particularly uh, or um, generally bodies of culture, but specifically black bodies understand that um, they are not defective that something happened and continues to happen to them and their people. Um, and so that organizes me. Like when, when I'm, you know, when I'm doing my practices and my workshops and stuff like that, one of the things that I'm, most of what I'm doing is, is looking at people through Zoom and just saying to them, you know, those calls to be greater than you are is why you were put here. Those, those things that you've, done to thwart that was caused those things that you've done to bury the voice the voice within the voice continues to talk to you and your job is to cultivate that and um white body supremacy is a thwarting energy it is a it is a way to have us believe that we are only valued by what we produce we are only valued by what the structure gives value around and so for me, it really, the, the organizing piece is that Black, that Black bodies specifically and bodies of culture generally are not defective. We are not fraudulent. We are not imposters. We are not, we don't have a stain on us, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so... All right, so I think we have time for one more question. It actually connects to what you were saying, Resma, about uh, white body supremacy. And the question is, and this is actually for both of you. Uh, the question is, um, you know, how can people, white people, be accomplices in the work that you two are describing, in the work that you two are calling all people to? Uh, mm. what, what is the work of white people in that work? Mm. Uh, brother, what fuck? Can, yeah. can I take a stab at that first? <laughs> no, can I take? I won't go tell you what it was. I won't. I, 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 I remember one time, you know, uh, 
someone asked me uh, uh, what his name was, the guy from the He's a, you know, uh, we, we're in negotiations now to do a movie about my book. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the producers after the, uh, uh, what it was, the, uh, George Floyd killing, you know, he mm-hmm. called me and he was racked with confusion and guilt and stuff. And he like, what can I do? How, how, you know, how, how, how can, you know, and, and even after that, you know, I agreed to sit down with him and some other white friends and do a, a, a Zoom, you know, to try the thing, you know, and, and uh, I don't know if it's possible not see skin color as the first thing you see in, in, in a human being or a situation, you know, to see, see that person as a human being above all all other things you know it's diff- it's very difficult to answer that's a great question but it's very difficult uh, to answer you know uh, uh, my relationship is biracial you know mm-hmm. so there's an added pressure there to uh uh you know uh, in my struggle for humanity uh i have to be you know uh, mindful of my woman and, and and her feelings and her you know upbringing and stuff like it then and, mm-hmm. and she is a tremendous source of strength uh to me and 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 her wisdom seemed to be uh boundless you know and and, and mama so uh yeah as I, 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 I guess like I see, you know, see the person, person, not the color of their skin, you know. And I and I say that because, you know, I remember, you know, I've had a lot of lot of experiences with the court system, you know, over the last four decades and stuff. And I, you know, I always got this feeling when I went into court, and you know, Robert and Harmon and I had to teach ourselves law. Uh, both criminal and uh, and civil law, to to as a means of battling against what we were going through, and I always got the impression that, that the first thing this judge saw was the color of my skin. You know, he didn't see my humanity, he didn't see uh, my morality, he didn't see my my values or nothing. You know, he just saw the color of my skin. You know. And and so you know that's that's where that come from. You know we can get past that, and I know it's difficult. Believe me, this is a simple five response to the question. But if we can, you know, find a way to get past that, I think we can make more progress mm-hmm. and at a quicker pace than what we're making now. You know, mm-hmm. and I've been asked about uh, the acknowledgement of the recognition of the Black Lives Matter movement, who uh, Robert and I have championed for the last almost 10 years, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and the fact that finally the world seemed to be embracing 
uh, this movement, you know, I mean, it, some of them have a perverted view of what it means and stuff, you know. Uh, when I say Black Lives Matter, that is a symbolic, uh, of course, that all lives matter. I shouldn't have to, it's in, and I resent when I have to explain or add on to that, that statement, you know. Black Lives Matter is a symbolic uh, uh, way of saying stop killing black folks at the rate you're killing them. Stop, you know, stop. Uh, we just had an incident in Minnesota where a traffic ticket carried mm-hmm. the death penalty. This is ridiculous. No due mm-hmm. process, no nothing. A traffic ticket. Here's a child who has been deprived of, of, of his father for the his entire rest of his life over a traffic ticket. Thank you for that. Uh, Resmond, we have maybe a, a minute or two to okay. respond. All right. So a couple of things. Uh, Black Lives Matter is the floor, not the ceiling. Right. Um, and and it is it is it is important for us to realize that that mattering is the least this structure can do for what it has done to my people. The least just mattering. Right. And they can't do that. This is about for me. This is about um, really about cultivating a living, embodied anti-racist culture and practices. If you ain't doing that, you telling me you're an ally is irrelevant. You telling me that you want to help is irrelevant. Your individual niceness is irrelevant. I want to know when you tell me an ally, two pieces, how would I know that if you hadn't told me? And, 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 And then two, who are you doing and cultivating the work with it? Who are your people that you're cultivating a living, embodied, anti-racist culture? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about your individual bullshit. I'm talking about a, a, a cultivation of a culture. White bodies have no agility, no efficacy as a collective when it comes to race. None. We black bodies and indigenous bodies have had to learn the nuance, the vibrations, the the sense of a of, of a space before we enter the space because our very survival depends on it. Now the opposite is true for black for, for white bodies. White bodies have not been conditioned to be. This is why they call Brother Woodfox, who spent forty four years in solitary confinement. They have to call him and extract that from him because they refuse to develop the culture to hold it and Google something and figure it out amongst themselves. So what they do is they want to put that on black and brown and indigenous But It's time for white folks to develop culture, living embodied anti-racist culture, not platitudes, not declarations of independence. And when I don't mean the document, I mean, they always want to declare that they're independence from, independent from other white folks. That's the problem. Get your ass over there and be with the other white bodies and commit for the rest of your life not to pass this thing that is destroying black and indigenous people since y'all got here, that you commit your life to making sure that that gets abolished. If you ain't doing that, it's performative because in a year or so, you're going to lose interest. In a year or so, you're going to lose all of the energy that you had, that you thought you had because you have cultivated nothing with other white bodies. 
I know I just went on, I tried to make that in in a minute, but I just needed to say that. I, white folks who declare to me that they are allies without any demonstrative effort with other white bodies are suspect to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My mom had a saying, she said, boy, the mouth will say anything, the ass is the proof. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know I, what? I, I think that sums it up right there. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, I just want to uh, respect uh, space and time. There is more to be said, but more importantly, there is more to be done. Mm -hmm. So let's close here. I want to thank you both. Mm. Thank you. Uh, from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. Thank you mm. so much for your generosity of time. Mm. generosity of minds. Mm. I want to thank um, all the folks who helped us get through this, our interpreters, our ASL interpreters. Mm. What's up, y'all? What's up? <laughs> the tech folks who supported us, our student folks who supported us. Um, and I also want to thank people who were with us this morning to hear. Um, I believe these brothers made some good medicine. Mm. I hope that you take it and allow yourself to be changed by it. And as I always say to my students, I'll say this to everyone. Uh, I wish that everyone uh, stays safe and get free out there. Get free. Thank you for your time. Thank, Thank you. you both. Thank you, Brother Wood Fox, man. All right, brother. Love you, brother. Love you, brother. Love you, too, brother Copeland. Honor. Stay strong. I hope we get a chance to meet in person. Me too. Me too. Okay. This, this is the way. That's it. That's it. All right. All right. So are we still live or? Nate, are you there? All right, then if we are still live, I'm gonna say goodbye and uh, take care of yourselves. <laughs>